Well, good morning. And it's good to be with you. Just before we pray and dig in, I just want to say that if you have the chance to say thank you and to give a hug to Matt Cruz, you should. Matt is right down here. And I love this man. He planted the original Seven Mile Road just north of Boston. He invested in my life in a time when I desperately needed it. He has been a dear friend. He's also the namesake for my youngest child. And uh, I got to take him to the hospital last night to meet my little boy, which was a treasured moment. And now being here in this room, just for you to know, Matt, we wouldn't be here with this expression of the church in this way if it weren't for you and your investment in me and your commitment to what God is doing in Houston. So thank you. We're really glad to have you with us. He's heading to catch a flight to Boston after this service. And so maybe, just maybe you could hug him and say thank you for the ways that God has touched your life indirectly through him before he heads out. We love you around here and we're glad to have you. Let me pray for us and we're gonna open the scriptures together. So our Father, we bless you and we thank you that you're a speaking God. You have spoken definitively and truly and completely in the scriptures, and we thank you for that. And we rejoice that you are still a speaking God in alignment with what you have revealed. You speak directly to our hearts, and for that we're grateful. We thank you that you are alive and active and on the move, and we invite you in these moments to take this definitive Holy Spirit-inspired text and to speak it directly to our hearts in a way that leaves us changed. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know that the basic technology for kind of personal safety has been largely unchanged over 6,000 years for Security and personal safety. The key was developed 6,000 years ago. And do you know that it's changed very little over 6,000 years? Still used globally. We all have some jingling in our pockets. We trust them that when we lock it, our house is secure, our car is locked. It's amazing. It's this amazing kind of somewhat crude technology that has stood the test of time and has been, there's been very few advancements on the key. And as I As I've been preparing and sitting with 2 Kings 3, I've realized that in many ways, worship is like this mysterious, ancient, powerful key that unlocks things that just aren't unlocked in any other way. We're in the middle of a series called Sing, and what we've been exploring together is the central work of worship in the life of the Christian and the church. Our work of singing out and worshiping is really crucial and central to what it means to be Christians. We've said that when we sing out, the word of God settles in and that we sing out in ways that are directed by his word and by his spirit. And that when we sing out, even last week we were saying that this is part of spiritual warfare, that the songs of the saved cause evil spirits to scatter, that God actually creates kind of a space where he can move in power when we're a singing people. And this week, what we're going to see is that God's word and direction and power in our life is unlocked 
It's unlocked by the key of worship, that when we're singing out, spirits don't just scatter, but the Holy Spirit settles in and begins to speak and guide and direct. Our worship is crucial and central to how we chart a course together and individually in a way that honors God. And so from 2 Kings 3, this journey of several kings dealing with Moabite aggression, what we're going to see in this ancient text is a couple of different ways to deal with moments of tension, moments of anxiety and unrest. We're gonna see that there is a king that's going to respond with his, his fleshly strategy He is going to strategize in his own strength, but what we're going to see is that what God has in store for them has to be unlocked by their submission and by their worship. And so from this text, the word that I'm going to offer to your heart and to mine this morning is this, would you cease striving in your own flesh? Lay it down. And all the places where you're just trying to manage by your own flesh and strategy, would you lay it down? And would you unlock God's direction and purpose, which is gonna come in submission and in worship to him. So with that being said, let's dig into this text in particular. We're gonna see right off the bat that strategizing in your own strength will take you to the end of yourself. It will wear you out. We are confronting all sorts of things that we don't have answers for. Can we admit that? in my parenting journey, in my marriage, in my friendships, in work, in challenges that are unexpected that show up and inject anxiety into the system. We're all confronting things that when we, when we survey the landscape, we go, I don't know what the solution is to this thing that has showed up on my door. And the temptation is daily when that happens is that we, we muster our strength and our strategy and our planning and our purposes and we go, with my gifts, I can burst through this wall. I can conquer this challenge. And what we're gonna see is that strategizing in the flesh does a little more than wear us out. Look at the way this text starts. This is a story that starts in 2 Kings 3 verse one. I wanna just set some context together. If If you'll look back with me, I think we'll see that strategizing in our own strength wears us out. Verse one, it says this, it was the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. This is a king in the south. The the kingdom of Israel is separated between the north and the south. The south is typically a more faithful kingdom. There are seasons where that isn't the case throughout Israelite history, but this is one of those seasons. Jehoshaphat is a, a king that wants to honor God and walk with him. Um, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. And he reigned 12 years and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not quite like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. So an evil king that doesn't honor God is in the north. A God-fearing king is in the south. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, and he did not depart from it. Now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel, so that King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time, and he mustered all of Israel. And he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, the king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as you are, my horses as your horses. 
And then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so you're following what's happening? There's this new king that takes over in the north and he's had an arrangement with Moab for a long time, this other kingdom, that every year you're gonna make these donations to me and we'll provide some support and some oversight for you. But when, when his father died and he took over the kingdom, Moab said, this is our chance to quit having to pay these heavy fines. So they're trying to cast off Israelite oversight and say, we're not gonna keep sending this. So now there's a rift and the king of Israel gathers everyone. He comes to the southern kingdom that honors God and says, will you go with me to battle? They say, sure. And they say, which way are we gonna take to the battle lines? He says, this is the way we're gonna go. We're gonna go through Edom. And then in verse nine and 10, this is where it leads them. It says, so the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. You see, Jehoram, this king in the north, has been confronted with a, a challenge that was unexpected. He thinks he's about to lose a significant amount of his influence and his money. And so he is feeling the pressure. I'm a new king and already other kingdoms are disrespecting me. And so he goes around and he starts taking a survey of what do I have within my reach? I've got these relationships, so I'm gonna muster these relationships. I'm gonna get all of these forces and I'm gonna march out and we're gonna make this right. You see, he initiates the relationships with the other armies. He's the one who sets out the plan as to how they're gonna march. And then when they find themselves in the middle of Edom with no water and they're all about to die of thirst in a parched place, he begins to curse God. There's this interesting journey that Jehoram has been on. He has hatched a plan by his own strength and his own strategy and it hasn't worked. And then when brought to the end of himself, he begins to curse God even though God has had nothing to do with this plan. It's interesting. He's, he's kind of a picture of the proverbial fool in Proverbs 19 verse three, it says this, when a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. He has made the plan by his own strength and might and now he's been brought to a parched land at the end of himself and he starts to go, God is so cruel, look at what he's done. You see, what we see in the character of Jehoram is that when we strategize and plan by our own might, it brings us to the end of ourselves, it wears us out. Often in pressurized moments, we get frantic, we get strategic, we get tight-fisted. What I've realized is that I become a functional deist. Do you know what a deist is? A deist says, well, God's there, but he's generally uninterested. He's at a distance and I need to take care of things myself. I become a functional deist when there's pressing practical problems. You know, when all of a sudden there's real unrest, I start to think, well, I've got to figure this out. When I have a, a child, which would never happen in my house, but let's just say that it were the case, that if I had a child that were really obstinate and disobedient, there's a certain sense in which I start thinking, how by my might and my strategy am I going to curb his will? How am I going to fix this by my might? Or for instance, when when, once again, just a hypothetical, a church's property like evaporates in 30 days. <laughs> you know, like just a moment where you're like, you're just throwing out ideas, you know? 
there are these moments where you go, this is an unexpected turn. I'm confronting something, whether it's in my parenting and a friendship and a strategic setting where I'm confronting something that I wasn't anticipating. And the challenge is if we're not careful, is that where we feel the anxiety turned up, Jehoram right now feels like my influence, my wealth, my respect, it's all on the line. And so what he does is he gets uber strategic. He's energetic, he's frantic, let's go, here's the path, we do it. And all it does is it wears him out and it leads him to a parched place. The question at the outset is, have you ever been there? Trying to manage the challenges in your marriage, in your parenting, in your relationships, at work, by just getting more grit and tenacity. And then all of a sudden you're wondering, why is it not working? Why is this conversation with my son, why does it feel like a battle of the wills rather than something that God is in the midst of? Why is this strategic concern just continuing to wear me out and causing us to feel like we don't have answers? It's because in these moments where the pressure gets turned up, if we're not careful, we become functional deists thinking that our resources and our wisdom is the key that's gonna unlock that door, and it's not. I remember when COVID hit, I was invited to all of these leadership Zooms. You know, I was on all of these Zoom calls. The whole world had been shut down and it was like leadership gurus inviting you, hey, come be a part of our, and I, and I realized nothing, I'm all for strategy and planning, but I realized how anxious I was getting by continuing to participate in these calls. There were leaders from all over the country and all over the world that would get on and it was like some guru explaining how you can manage the unmanageable. And there was a reality in this moment that we were confronting something that all of our resources, we, we don't, we're going through the key ring and we're going like, I don't have a key for this door. This tension with my spouse, this brokenness in this relationship, this strategic thing that has just settled over the whole world. And like, I'm just frantically flipping through all my keys and none of them fit in the lock. Because the reality is strategy in our own strength by our flesh does little more than wear us out. Your effort and your grit is not the key to unlock the most challenging issues in your life. And this text is gonna provide a different path, a different key altogether, which incidentally makes type A planners and achievers, which there are none of those in this room, really uncomfortable. The alternative path makes my heart really uncomfortable. Because what this text speaks to us, it's going to invite us to seek the Lord's direction. Like his personal, intentional direction for us. And it's even going to call us to do that in a song, in a moment that feels um, inefficient, like a throwaway. It's going to be an invitation to settle down and to listen for God's particular voice, even in moments of worship where incidentally the pressure is being turned up and, and we don't have time for that sort of activity because we need some answers and some solutions and some, some forward motion. And what I want you to see is the way that this key unlocks something that was not going to be unlocked otherwise. Look at verses 11 through 20 with me. It says this, 
And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? So they're in the parched wilderness. They've been brought to the edge of their cells by their own effort and strategy. And Jehoshaphat just very gently says, hey, do you think, do you think there's a word from God here? Like you're cursing God saying he got us into this, but it was all your plan. He doesn't say all that. That's the subtext. But he's like, if you're going to curse God, maybe we should let him speak for himself. Do you think there's a prophet that might speak for the Lord? It says, then one of the king of Israel's servants answered. Interestingly, the king of Israel doesn't have an answer to this question. He doesn't know if there's a prophet, but his servant knows. He says, one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour, pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat says, the word of the Lord is with him. Interestingly, the king of the south is familiar with Elijah and Elisha. The servant is familiar. The king of Israel is silent in this moment. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. And Elisha says to Jehoram, this king from the north, he says, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father, to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to them, to, uh, to give them into the hand of Moab. He's still making accusations against the Lord whom he has not sought and he has not listened to. And Elisha says, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I wouldn't look at you or see you. I love how honest Elisha is. He's like, the only reason we're still having this conversation is because he's here. <laughs> I wouldn't even stomach this interaction otherwise. But in this space, so interesting, what he says in verse 15, but now bring me a musician. And when the music played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but the stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and you shall fell every good tree and stop up all the springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning about the time of offering to the sacrifice. Behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. You see, when Jehoshaphat asked the question, they go and they seek out the prophet. And, and what I find so interesting, we, we get a little hint as to how things worked for the prophets of old. That Elisha in this moment, when petitioned by these three kings on his doorstep, doesn't just say, all right, here's what the Lord has to say about this that the prophets weren't perpetually in this state of being able to speak confidently the word of the Lord. That Elisha in this moment says, okay, because Jehoshaphat's here, we'll see what God has for us. And then he says, bring me a musician. And I have to wonder in this moment if Jehoram is not thinking, ah, this is exactly what I expected. What a waste of time. I roll in here and this guy looks at me and insults me and says he wouldn't even talk to me if it weren't Jehoshaphat. Doesn't he know who I am? And then he has the audacity when all of our forces are about to die of thirst out in the wilderness to say now's the time for a worship service. If I'm Jehoram in this moment, I'm thinking this is such a waste of time. 
But what Elisha knows is this, the gifts of God, the voice of God, the direction of God is not subject to us. Elisha doesn't have authority over God. He's not a prophet that walks around just distilling the word of God like like it's his to manage. He is submitted to God and what he realizes is that worship is a key that mysteriously unlocks the presence, the power, and the guidance of God. He says, we need a musician. What an interesting note because it's in this verse, this is a pivot in the whole text. Everything is going to change when Elisha calls for the musician because the worship of the faithful unlocks the presence and the direction of God. It's as Elisha slows his heart down as they all enter a moment of worship that God speaks in a way that directs them, in a way that that strengthens them. You see, to accomplished and strong and competent and together leaders, waiting on God's direction in worship feels like a time drain. And to that, I would just say, beware. If you're too busy and too important for the most crucial activities, and I say this to my own heart first, then beware because God's direction and power and guidance may be something that feels like a distant reality to you. But for Elisha in this intense moment, he doesn't reach for his strategy and structure and grit. He reaches for the presence of God in worship and he hears from him. Now, for our purposes, I think it's really important just a brief aside about the prophetic in general, because if we're gonna apply this appropriately to our lives, we've gotta, we've gotta reckon with this a little bit. The prophetic in the Old Testament and the New Testament function somewhat differently, but there is very clearly the work of the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in the wake of the resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke in a way that said, thus saith the Lord, and it was written down, and this is how we've come to understand huge portions of our written text of God. It was God's comprehensive, complete word that was being revealed through his vessels. They were being carried along by the Spirit in this way. New Testament prophets are functioning in the life of the church and it's actually expected in the life of the church that there there would be people that are gifted uniquely to be hearing from God in pointed ways. But prophecy in in the New Testament and prophecy in the New Testament church inspired by the Holy Spirit isn't speaking things that are on par with scripture. It's not that there's some new revelation that's going to be revealed in our community that needs to be written down and cherished like scripture. No, no, no. The prophetic gifts and the life of the church never usurp scripture. They never undermine scripture. They're always an application. It's like a divine highlighter bringing to bear God's word in pointed ways in our hearts and life. And so for that reason, what we see is that that the prophetic is functioning throughout the life of God's people, Old Testament and new, and oftentimes in and through musical moments. Just, just still feeling the weight of how the prophetic has worked. If we were to look at a place like 1 Samuel 10, you can jot that down and give it a look later. There's a team of prophets that are coming down from the mountains and they're all speaking God's word as they're learning what it looks like to function in the prophetic gift and what's in front of them, but musicians that are playing and singing. It's actually in a context of worship that they're hearing God's word. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 13, the sending of Paul and Barnabas as missionaries and the starting of the first church planting movement happened because there was prayer and fasting and worship. 
the leadership of the church was together. They weren't strategizing, how are we gonna reach the world for Jesus? They weren't thinking that that was their might and effort that was going to do it. They were together worshiping and praying and God all of a sudden showed up and said, Paul and Barnabas, send them. They heard from God clearly in a moment of worship. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the chapters in the epistles where Paul is teaching the church about what does it look like to foster the gifts of the spirit, especially the gifts of the prophetic, God speaking to his people. It's all in the context of the gathered church worshiping. Right before the prophetic gifts are talking about, it says some people will gather and they will bring a psalm or a hymn and some will bring a word from God. And the idea is that it's in the worshiping family that we're hearing from God clearly. You see, worship is central. It's like a marvelous, mysterious, historic, divine key that's unlocking realities of God's guidance and care in our family. Just very practically, I was thinking back on ways that I've seen this operate in our family and in my life over the years. I was reminded of a couple of years ago, I was in worship and I was praying and singing and all of a sudden a person came to mind, a person in this community, and it was like God was telling me something about them. Said this person is really trustworthy. Their voice is strong. They need to be encouraged that they need to keep speaking because their voice is trusted and valuable. And so on my way home, I called this person and said, hey, I'm, I don't know if this is like the Lord's word or I just need you to know, like I was praying, I was in a, in a moment of worship, your mind, your face came to mind and I just wanted you to know, your voice is really trustworthy and strong and you need to trust it. And the person said to me, oh, that's so interesting. I thought when your name popped up that you were calling because you saw that I left upset today. And I was like, no, tell me about that. I left upset today because the way that you handled the message and that this particular reality, I really did not sit well with me and I was pretty frustrated. And I was like, huh. Uh, well, it seems that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me that your word is really trustworthy and strong and you should trust your word. So lay it on me. And it felt like this gift of the Holy Spirit protecting the unity and the, the health of the church in this moment that I was prepared to be convicted and to wrestle with some of my weakness. And it was like he was tending to us both in the same moment and I had no idea. Or at our last prayer gathering, there was a woman there that had someone near her that didn't know her that was praying and felt like they had a word for her and they, they stepped out in faith and they said, hey, here's a scripture that came to mind. I don't know totally what's going on with you, but I just want to share this scripture with you and pray this over you. And as she was telling me after, she said, I was weeping because in that moment, it was like the thing I needed to know that God saw about me. I felt so loved by God. And I realized that that moment where a person steps out, I mean, that's, can we just all admit that's one of those like moments of a little bit of exposure. It feels a little weird to be that person of like, I know I don't know you, but I think God might be saying something. And so I just wanted to extend this word. But then the way that faith builds and joy builds when the person receives and it goes, oh, God sees me and he loves me. You see, there's a key 
as the community is worshiping and submitting to God, it unlocks his guidance and his care and his word. I just wanna encourage you, would, would we be the sorts of people, a safe sort of place where when we show up and we sing out, when we cultivate hearts of worship, that we would operate with expectation that God's going to meet us? He might be wanting to share something through you, a word of encouragement and blessing for someone else. And we're not showing up like Old Testament prophets saying, thus saith the Lord, you need to write this down. This is the word of God over your life. We're coming with humility and love to go, I, I don't know, but, but in worship, you were coming to mind. I wanted to share this with you. And in that, we oftentimes experience God's particular tending and guiding. Old Testament and new, the key that is frequently unlocking that door is worship. You see, not just strategizing by our own strength, which brings us to, to the end of ourselves, which wears us out, but slowing down and being a worshiping people that submit to God's voice. We listen for him and we, we speak out with courage. What happens in that space is unexpected victories through unexpected means. Look back at the text with me in verses 21 through 25. It says this, when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and they struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities on every good piece of land and every man threw a stone until it was covered. And they stopped every spring of water and they felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. Now, listen, this was never gonna show up in a war room and a strategy session. This would never be written on a whiteboard. This is not a plan for success. If some kings got together, they're like, here's how we're gonna sack the Moabites. We're gonna get some mysterious water to pool on the ground. And tomorrow when the sun shines on it, they're gonna think it's blood. Surely they're gonna think we've turned against one another. They're gonna walk right in like a trap and we're gonna be able to sack them. That's not a plan. That, that doesn't show up in any war book. Like, oh, how do I do this? I wait until the water looks like blood. That's not a plan. But incidentally, throughout the scriptures, when the people of God are in battle, time, this isn't the first time. Joshua marching around Jericho, Gideon with his stripped crew, Jehoshaphat earlier in his own reign, time and time again, as the people march into battle, they march with something that is not a war plan. When they've really heard from God, they oftentimes are operating in unexpected ways that secure unexpected victories. The way that it is said by the prophet Zechariah in chapter four and verse six is this, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, here is a victory that God in his kindness is delivering to these people. He, he showed up and he provided water for them and he says, and by the way, now that you're seeking me and worshiping me, I'm not just gonna meet the immediate need, I'm gonna give you all of your heart's desire, the most unexpected victory and the most unexpected of means that, that I won't just make sure your people don't die of thirst in the wilderness, I will give you victory that you could have never unlocked with your key ring. 
The key was always coming and submitting to me, waiting for my voice and responding to my guidance. And you see, this journey is the one that we are on. Whatever it is, I don't know what you've come in facing, but I know that part of being human in a broken world is that we're all facing things constantly. Things that generate fear and anxiety and unrest where we go, I don't have a key to this door. I don't know how to deal with this one. And into that space, I would invite you to be the sorts of people that set your gaze on King Jesus and soak in his grace and in his kindness. He marched out in this very same way, listening for God's voice, submitting to him, submitting his plans to him and staying in that place as a worshiper of God, even in the places where he had to resist flash and strategic power. You know, it was the voice of Satan that said, hey, you could throw yourself off of the temple and prove to everyone how great you are. You can secure things by your strength and by your resources right now. But God's plan was an unexpected plan for Jesus, not to manage things by his strategy and might, but by staying submitted to God's voice and listening for him as a perpetual worshiper. And God led him to a place where he secured victory for all of us in the most unexpected means that it was actually his brutal death and his resurrection where he was unlocking all of the riches of heaven for you. Not just to meet your current most pressing need, but to bring you the victory that your soul needs most fully and most completely. It comes from Jesus, the ultimate worshiper of the Father who stayed submitted to his hand, unlocking all of the riches of heaven. Listen, when he is your Lord, when you say yes to Jesus, believing that he is paid for your sin, he has secured life and health in you, prepare for a downward journey. Jesus will lead you down. He will lead you into humility, into service, into the sort of person that doesn't show up in strength to match all of the concerns and struggles in your life, but a person that submits to him and shows up like a worshiper weak and needy, singing to God and going, I know that as I wait for your presence, God, as I stay in this place, exalting the one who has secured eternal victory, that you will guide me, you will lead me, you will lead us as a community. And in that space, low and humbled before Jesus, we are a people that begin to experience unexpected victory and unexpected means. A people that are held together by his grace, knowing that our eternity is secure, even as we continue to march through the difficult battle lines that he's laid out for us today. Friends, would you cease striving in your own flesh? Would we be the sort of people that would just stop? We don't have to manage it all by our might anymore. We wanna be a worshiping people who wait on the Lord and watch him secure the victories that only he can secure. Would you wait for him in worship and respond obediently to his guidance? Let's sing out and let the spirit settle in as he guides us. Let me pray for us. Father, I repent of things that I I think are a badge of honor, but they actually so frequently distance me from your heart. I repent of my, my ceaseless activity, my diligence and my effort 
those aren't bad things, but they're twisted in my heart because I think they're gonna be my functional saviors. And they just wear me out. I pray that you would expose us. Help us to be a people that are comfortable with a posture of worship, of waiting, of submission. And would you, as we do those things, would you unlock the door to your guidance and your care and your direction? Help us to be a listening people, a people that courageously speak the truth to one another and who who step out in faith, offering words of hope and encouragement to one another. Would you come and move in our midst like that? We need you. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that in you we have ultimate victory and that you will continue to guide us by your spirit. It's in your precious and your powerful name that we pray. Amen.